So welcome to episode seven of the Six Cells podcast. I am ridiculously excited today um, to welcome Rory Sutherland uh, to the podcast. I've been, anyone that knows me knows that I've been a massive fan um, of Rory and his work, especially his TED Talks, which I probably make up a high percentage of the millions of views they've had, um, watched them several times over. And whenever I'm looking for a bit of inspiration or, or an uplifting moment, um, I can I can be sure to find them on the, on Rory's TED Talks. Rory d- doesn't really need any much of an introduction, but um, he's an author of uh, The Wiki Man and mo- more recently Alchemy, which we'll uh, dive into today. Um, TED Talks, as I've already mentioned, Life Lessons from an Ad Man, Sweat the Small Stuff and Perspective is Everything, um, a fellow at the B2B Institute, um, and, um, and he also has a day job on top of all of that, of course, uh, which is um, I'm heading up and founding the uh, Behavioral Science Practice at Ogilvy. So good morning, Rory, and welcome to the Six Cells Podcast. Oh, it's a huge pleasure to be on. Thank you for inviting me. It's it, the pleasure's all mine. I can uh, I can assure you. So just to, just to um, just to kick us off, Rory, would you just um, give us an idea on what a behavioural science um, practice does um, at Ogilvy and how that interacts with the rest of the company and how you can kind of help your clients um, to to achieve uh, their outcomes using behavioural well, science? To be honest, I mean one one thing that's always slightly irritated me with uh, working in the advertising industry is that. Um, I think it gets involved in problems a little too late. And I think that problem is compounded by the fact that we now charge on hourly fees rather than commission. I suspect one of the useful things about being paid on commission was since you were free until the tire actually hit the road, uh, there was an incentive to engage you a bit earlier. Yeah. But I also think we're a bit narrow in um, uh, focusing too much attention on the on one of the the various p's of marketing which is there's too much focus on um avert or bought communication and not enough time is spent looking at the other contextual factors which either drive or constrain behavior and you know ultimately uh, all marketing is about behavior change uh, because if you are, you know, whatever you're doing, if you aren't actually changing behaviour, you know, you're, you know, ultimately failing. Um, yeah. uh, you know, that you may wish to do that in lots of oblique and different ways, um, but nonetheless, um, I think what I would say is that uh, our job is to find what we call sort of unseen, unexplored opportunities either to remove constraints or to add encouragement for people to adopt certain desired behaviors. And to do that, I think recent advances in psychology have taught us some very interesting things. First of all, behavioral economics has taught us that quite a lot of seemingly logical assumptions that derive from mainstream economics are unsafe assumptions. They're simply not true. Okay. Okay. Um, The second thing I would say is that mainstream economics, because of the assumptions it makes uh, in order to achieve mathematical neatness, uh, mainstream economics is incredibly creatively limiting because it essentially says everybody perceives the world completely objectively um, and they have absolutely perfect assessment of potential utility and a completely 
objective perception of cost. Therefore, the only things you can do to actually improve well-being or grow the economy are to either make your product materially um, more useful uh, or reduce the cost. And it effectively gives you those two levers you can pull. And by denying psychology, all the other imaginative, the whole panoply of other imaginative activities you might engage in to make something um, more salient or more valuable to somebody. So this is what you called intangible value, right? Um, in one of your TED talks. Yeah, yeah. You could call it. You could call it contextual value. You could call it subjective value. Um, uh, I mean, what you've got to remember is that by assuming perfect information and perfect trust, uh, um, among other assumptions, there are more. Um, essentially, economics has created a model of the world where marketing wouldn't need to exist. Okay. And so as such, people who study economics tend to see, non-Austrian economics anyway, tend to see advertising or marketing in any kind as a kind of, uh, as, as an inefficiency, essentially. It's a cost to be minimized. It's a necessary evil at best. Hmm. And it's a completely wrong way to frame this because actually what we know from psychology, not only is, the, is this economic model totally inadequate, but also um, that people's perception of the world is highly context dependent. The same thing presented in two different ways can literally seem like a weakness or a strength. The strength I'll, I'll give you a perfect example of that. Talk, for example. Or if you take the Avis advertisement, um, which is, you know, Avis is number two in rent rental cars, so we try harder. The first line is up until that point, until you add the four words at the end, that's actually a weakness. Most people go, well, let's, let's go with the Hertz because they're bigger, more cars, more likely to have the car of our choice at our chosen destination, et cetera, et cetera. But then you flip that number two in size towards what you might call customer service attitude and motivation. Yeah. And suddenly that same thing has been translated into a Guinness, you know, um, reassuringly expensive for Stereotra. Guinness is um, good things come to those who wait. Yeah. Um, some extent Marmite, you either love it or you hate it. Um, all of those things are an example where you can reframe something or uh, essentially change the comparative frame uh, and literally by diverting attention or or what you might call by by recontextualizing perception uh, you can literally you know turn lead into gold hence the title of the book alchemy yeah yeah cool um I, and I, i'm definitely i'm going to come on to, to alchemy in a second but i read something else of yours uh, recently called uh, it was a paper that you wrote for the b2b institute called the objectivity trap um and there was one line in there which had me um on my feet applauding and you might think that's quite cool but the other mourners didn't like it um you said marketing as a mindset um and i, I just I, I just love that i'd love you to talk a little bit about what you mean by marketing as a mindset it's really important to know this, which is particularly, I think, in B2B companies and those kind of businesses, but also, I think, in all brands, whether B2B or B2C, which tend to have a tech focus or a financial focus or a kind of highly economic focus. Um, 
there's this huge danger, which I think has already happened, which is marketing actually becomes marcoms. It's no longer marketing in the proper sort of Kotler sense of what marketing is and should be responsible for. It's instead just a marcoms function, which is kind of reprographics with a degree. Mm. And the point about that is why it's so dangerous is, first of all, it gets involved in very, in very little of what marketing should do, and it gets involved too late. It gets perceived as a cost. Um, and it's, it's never involved at sort of board-level decisions. And if you don't have some sort of marketing mindset on the board, it's worth remembering that you can make decisions that make perfect sense within the context of staring at a balance sheet, yeah. which can actually be deeply inimical to customer, uh, you know, customer retention or customer value. Because you know, the first thing that marketing does is it, see, it tries at least, sometimes succeeds, at seeing a business through the eyes of its customers. And in lots and lots of different ways, by the way, uh, you can look at information about your customers without a marketing context. You can look at it you know, through as aggregate averages of financial transactions, and you can completely fail to understand what's really going on. You can completely fail to understand what the real motivation is of people buying from you. You can completely fail to understand by the act of averaging or adding up customer base, you can completely fail to, to understand, for example, customer satisfaction, because a fast growing business that's losing customers equally, you know, nearly as fast can look like a successful business if you're not careful. Yeah. And so unless you actually take that 90 degree flip, you know, it's rather like, you know, in architecture, you have front elevation, side elevation, rear elevation. And the reason you have to have different views at 90 degrees is because, uh, you know, and no one of those pictures, unless you're kind of Picasso, can show you the whole. Right. And in the same way, you need to have a marketing viewpoint because the perception of any experience uh, through a customer's eyes, you know, can be fundamentally different. Um, uh, and, and and understanding exactly what's going on there, what value means in the mind of the consumer, not value as defined by you in terms of number of products, widgets, or whatever it may be, or indeed defined by you in some other kind of SI unit terms. Because we tend to do that. We tend nearly all the units of measurement in business, when you think about it, are things like time or duration or punctuality. They're things we're used to seeing in mathematical equations, right? Now, the simple truth of the matter is because of, you know, God knows how many evolutionary reasons, we don't perceive time objectively, for example. We know, we know in English language you have phrases like time flies when you're having fun or it was the longest half hour of my life or, you know, the time seemed to drag by. Yeah. And so what we might be doing is we might be measuring the effect on a consumer in terms of the relationship between their behavior or their satisfaction and our objective metrics. And by the way, market research won't help us with this either, because if you ask consumers, they'll tend to say, I don't like it when my plane's late. Yeah. 
Okay. Now, I don't like it when my plane's late. Let's take this as an example. Okay. Um, maps nicely onto your measure of, you know, punctuality, percentage of aircraft that leave on time. Okay. And it all makes sense, right? Because you go, well, consumers are obviously flying by jet plane, therefore they're in a hurry. Um, we can measure the extent to which our aircraft leave with some form of delay. We can see that when there's a delay, people are unhappy. Okay. And when we ask people, why are you unhappy? They say, because there's a delay. Right? So uh, at this point, you, you think you know everything, right? And it's rather like my friend, my colleague, Chris Graves in Ogilvy, New York says, just because something makes sense doesn't mean it's true. And that's one of the most important lessons for marketers to learn, which is just because something makes sense doesn't actually mean it's the real explanation. So you have in mathematics things called false cause, spurious correlations, or sometimes confounding variables, right? Now, I would argue that most people, now there are other reasons to keep your, your planes flying on time other than passenger satisfaction. So, you know, you don't want knock-on timetabling problems. You don't want aircraft to get, you know, uh, stuck out somewhere because it's too late to land back at Gatwick by the time you get home. Anyway, there are loads of those reasons you want your planes to leave on time. But what I'm saying is that from a passenger's point of view, what they're really upset by, what they're really upset by most of the time okay, isn't the fact that they're now going to arrive 20, 30, 40 minutes later than they originally planned. Because nearly everybody who flies by plane builds in a buffer of an hour or so. You know, I don't know many people, you might argue first thing in the morning, it's slightly different, but most people have built in some kind of buffer. And actually, you certainly have, you know, you can't rely on London traffic uh, to get you... Um, uh, to your destination from an airport without 20 or 30 minutes of, of variance built in, right? So it's not actually the delay in terms of arriving later that may be upsetting all but five of the people on the plane. It's actually the uncertainty they experience while they're waiting. So my point is there's a huge psychological difference between the, the departure board saying BA246 delayed versus BA246 delayed 20 minutes or delayed until 10.15, right? If you provide us with certainty, one very, very strong, there's a great model by David Rock, who's a neuroscientist, uh, New Zealander, now based in New York. It's called the SCARF model, okay? Status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, fairness. Five things that humans really, really care about and actually get kind of viscerally upset if they are violated. Okay, um, and yet which economics doesn't understand at all, and which business doesn't tend to understand at all. And my argument is that what you're really violating there when your plane is late is not punctuality, it's certainty. Yeah. And if therefore you can give people um, uh, you know, adequate and reassuring information. I've had flights delayed an hour and a half, and it doesn't bother me that much, because if you know it's delayed an hour and a half, you find other shit to do, right? You go and find a place where you can work, Geneva Airport, I got my hair cut, because there's a barber there, right? Uh, you can go shopping, you can have a meal. There are plenty of things you can do to kill an hour at an airport. It's not like it's 1956, and you're kind of sitting in a shed, right? Um, 
and you know at a reasonable airport there you know in, unless it's berlin tegel and you've gone through to airside too early you're going to be fine and so I think what often happens is people might be spending millions of pounds trying to make plane a bit more punctual. Now, as I said, Ryanair does this thing about leaving on time, arriving on time. But does anybody care within like five or six minutes being realistic? You know, because you don't know what the delay is going to be at passport control. You don't know what the delay is going to be to wait for your bags. You don't know what the delay is going to be waiting for a taxi. You don't know what the traffic is going to be like. The idea that you care within four to five minutes. This is a crazy thing, by the way, with um, uh, rail punctuality, which is I think a train is deemed to be late if it arrives in London three minutes later than timetabled. Hmm. That's a very silly matter. Don't get me wrong. If you're stuck on a train for 40 minutes with no information and your train's 40 minutes late and you, know, you end up missing a meeting, that's a problem. I'm not disputing that. But three minutes? I mean, like, literally, your knowledge of London traffic, your foreknowledge of London traffic is so perfect. Yeah. You can calculate your journey time to within a minute. Okay, if your office is right next to Charing Cross Station, then there's a kind of just about... You know, I'd say the people of, that plan to that sort of level of uh, detail are probably the ones that are always late. I mean, it's insanity, isn't it? Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, you have to, those stupid, so this is what I'm saying is that engineering metrics, SI units, don't map neatly onto human um, perception or, and therefore don't map neatly onto human behavior. And our emotional response to situations, which tends to drive our behavior much more than our conscious response, of course, is buried from market research. It's opaque to introspection in many cases. So, you know, if you ask someone, why are you so pissed off? They go, my plane's late. Okay. Nobody answers that question. If you could ask the amygdala that question, okay, and the amygdala could talk, the amygdala would probably say, I am disturbed by the high level of uncertainty and outcome in this situation because there's a high level of downside potential variance which makes me uneasy because in kind of evolutionary terms when we don't have enough information we've probably evolved the the tendency to imagine the worst you know that w when you don't know enough the the sensible survival response is to imagine the worst case scenario and so when we just see delayed we don't go oh, it's probably 10 minutes so i wouldn't worry about it less of a pint we go, oh my God, it's probably going to be cancelled now. You know, that's how we tend to look at, you know, unless we're kind of insanely optimistic, we tend to have a kind of evolutionary response where we go, you know, does this, is this just a precursor to cancelling the flights? Mm. You know, you know exactly the same and thing. When you, you don't get, know if you, when you get the tiniest, tiniest announcement on an aircraft which says, you know, we've had to replace the aircraft, or this has happened, or we're waiting for a spare part. You can see around half the people on the plane going, "We're going to crash and die." You know what I mean? Yeah. Because any any tiny clue that the flight isn't going completely to plan sets certain people off in a complete tizzy. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, and, and I think that um, uncertainty as well is you don't know if you've got time to go and have a haircut or a pint because exactly, um, yeah. you don't know what does delayed mean? Is it five and, minutes? Is it five hours? And not only that, but every three minutes for the next 40 minutes, I have to stare at the departure board to check if there's an update. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. No, no. So your time is, I mean, that's a really vital point about, I mean, why in God's name? In Israel, I, I, I gave a talk in Israel and I said, why do they, you know, um, one suggestion I'd make is if you want to make consumers much, much happier, okay, stop measuring call center waiting time 
And instead, if anybody has to wait more than two minutes or a minute and a half, or even, even 30 seconds, but certainly a minute, give them the option to request a call back. Because then you can load balance, you can, your stuff, nobody minds that, right? As long as you call back within two hours, or maybe you could even say, call back at a time, at a, you know, at a rough time you prefer, right? Yeah. So I've got that shit off my back. Then someone calls me back. I'm grateful they called me back. End of problem, right? Making me stand around for 25 minutes holding a phone to my ear while listening to appalling music. Mm. And I gave the suggestion in Israel, and they said, we can't do that. I said, why can't you do it? The technology exists. They said, no, 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 but it's already been done because in the Knesset, it was legislated that no company can keep someone, on, certainly no major utility or major bank. You aren't allowed to keep anyone on hold for more than a minute without offering them the option of requesting a callback. Wow. Okay. Now, when you think about it, that, that probably saves... I mean, it would certainly save several hours per person per year, wouldn't it? It's not a dumb thing to do in terms of legislation. Well, I, but I, I don't understand why the companies weren't doing it anyway. And then you, you go and look at their metric, metrics, and their metrics are on waiting time. But while I'm waiting for a callback, I'm not fucking waiting. I'm getting on with other things. Yeah. And, uh, and it, it, the metrics are basically a way for thick people to control the world while preventing imaginative people from doing anything different. I mean, you know, I really, I really fucking hate metrics in the sense that every time you impose a metric as a target uh, and, and that becomes the proxy for some solution or other, generally you're destroying hundreds of other potentially imaginative solutions. Yeah, because you're you're saying we must measure something that's objective. Why objectivity doesn't matter a shit. It's how people feel that matters, right? Yeah, that's so yeah. true, and that happens in sales and marketing a lot as well. And people are managed oh, by metrics because it yeah. makes the managers feel like they're in control. But um, as you say, it it takes away creativity. It takes away the individual. Um, you, you know that phrase, person. "What gets measured gets managed," which is always attributed to Philip Kotler. Yeah. And I always thought. It's a bloody weird thing for Kotler to say, because Kotler, right, is Austrian. His dad's an Austrian school economist. Austrian school economists almost can never get a Schumpeter was his dad's best mate, right? Um, Austrian school economists are hugely skeptical about the ability to quantify things, because they argue, for example, that preference is ordinal, it's not cardinal. And therefore, they argue that most of the use in mathematic, of mathematics in mainstream economics is spurious. So there's fucking weird for Kotler to say that. Yeah. So I went and investigated. Not only did he not say it, um, uh, it's actually derived from a different paper written by someone else who is using it as a criticism. Right. Effectively, he's saying, what gets measured gets managed, even when it actively harms the organization to manage it. And when the thing you are measuring is in sort of direct contradiction of those things that you are trying to achieve. So, so the whole phrase, what gets measured gets managed, is half of a paragraph effectively criticizing um, uh, criticizing the excessive use of metrics. And the quantification bias is absolutely dire because you're generally measuring what's easy to measure. You're not measuring what's important. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. So as a man 
as a man of a certain age, I remember when marketing and advertising used to work on the fact that if we did it and sales went up, it worked. And mm-hmm. I think with the digital world um, as it is now, the the obsession with measurement and tracking and ROI on an individual campaign basis and sometimes on an impression by impression basis is taking away a lot of the creativity and common sense. Um, I've my, always... my, okay, here's a joke, and it's not really politically correct, but we're both of that age where we where where we're slightly outdated. Okay, so we'll just have to get a win with this. If you pay your wife for sex, it's measurable, but it's not effective. Yeah, she'll tell you to piss off. Okay, if you buy your wife flowers, it's effective but not measurable. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So th- this is a you know, quite a lot of persuasion is obtained obliquely and indirectly. In other words, you know, there will be a correlation between how well you treat a partner, you know, and how much romantic action you get, okay? And, you know, and so the very point about this thing is that it's never a direct transaction. Do you see what I mean? So this is one of the reasons why a lot of human behaviour seems very weird, because we're... this is terribly Darwinian, but it, we're try, t- trying to obtain ends without being seen to try to attain them to an extent where we are not even, I'm not being unromantic here, because uh, emphatically not okay. I mean, my wife, my wife will, will actually bear me out on this because I occasionally carry out weird experiments like that <laughs> where, uh, you know. Or Mrs. Sutherland. Yeah, so she's a sort of guinea pig for totally weird behaviours, which I occasionally engage in to see how she reacts. Amazing. But the the point about the reason we're romantic is that our ultimate Darwinian motivation, you know, evolutionary psychologists and and evolutionary scientists make a good distinction between proximate and ultimate. There's the proximate explanation and then there's the ultimate explanation. And actually, in many cases, the people best attain their ends who are both best able to disguise their motivation okay right i mean i i i I, i've been married for 30 something years i i don't know how this works anymore but i imagine if you know if you go on a date and your first greeting to your partner is right okay doesn't play very well right because you know we're looking for you know there's a degree of information asymmetry going on here and people are trying to establish the motivation of the other person and not unreasonably they want someone who loves them as a whole you know not for entirely narrow purposes okay sure and so um uh, the best way in which you can essentially obtain things obliquely is to be unaware of your ultimate motivation in a way i think there might be a parallel in companies with that parallel which is what's effective and what's measurable because i would argue that often a large part of the business should be largely unaware of the profit motive you know i think i think in an ad agency you know i i I think you know you should allow a large proportion of people basically to proceed in business as though the whole purpose of this is to produce fantastic advertising and you should disguise from the fact that the agency exists to make money which it ultimately philosophically does mm. um but you know ultimately philosophically you know a lot of romance is probably driven by reproduction if you delve you know deep back enough and so there's a brilliant book by john Kay called obliquity um, and there's also a great book by Robert Trivers, who's a friend of mine, uh, who, I mean, and that's not important, the fact that he's a friend of mine, the fact is he's a brilliant evolutionary 
bi biologist, utterly fantastic guy. The, the guy who kind of effectively worked out gene-centered, you know, the gene-centered view of evolution. And um, uh, he, um, uh, he makes the point that actually, of course, the best way to deceive others is to deceive ourselves. So uh, it's best for us not even to be aware of our ultimate motivation in doing things. So we've therefore evolved these kind of parallel mental states, which serve the end better, okay? Mm. So I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm emphatically not saying love doesn't exist and that everybody who's pretending to be in love is just secretly going, okay, um, while plotting, you know, general sort of hanky-panky. It's not like that at all. It's a genuine thing, but it exists in a sense to obtain an end which, you know, is reproductive at some level. It's not only reproductive, it's to do with uh, pair bonding, you know, reliable, uh, uh, you know, uh, stable relationships, all other, all other man manner of things. But you'll, you'll attain far more, uh, actually, uh, um, if you treat it as a kind of a bleak question. Yeah. And so, because, you know, because so much is hidden from our, but when I make that point about what's effective and what's measurable, you're absolutely right, because I think a huge part of marketing activity and a huge part of advertising uh, will be um, essentially probabilistic and will always be probabilistic, which is you'll never know how it's going to work in advance. You'll never be able to attribute at the kind of molecular instrumental level how it worked in retrospect. And you won't even really be able to plan how it's going to work to that great extent. Fame, okay, taken as simple fame. Okay, fame pays back at, in huge and many different ways. Uh, apart from a very simple level, fame pays because if nobody's ever heard of you, they can't buy your product anyway, right? Okay, boring as that, right? Fame also works because we feel much more comfortable buying things if we've heard of them before. That's a known psychological thing. I think it's mental availability or the mere, uh, you know, the mere availability effect. Um, but also, lots of things happen because you're famous. If, if you're a B2B company, if your chief executive rings someone up, they return the call. You know, people come to you with ideas. Uh, people are, it's much easier to do business with a famous company because people won't demand the same level of reassurance because to some extent, the reassurance is provided by your brand name. Okay, so you might get involved in less tedious legal, um, you know. So, now, it's, you're never going to be able to attribute any of those outcomes to a single piece of communication, right? So this is like demanding, and nor will you be able to predict how it's going to pay off. You simply say that when you're more famous, you have greater exposure to um, what you might call upside opportunity, unplanned, unexpected luck, good fortune, positive opportunity in a lot of different ways. That's it. That's as, that's as, that's as kind of granular as you can really get. I mean, you, you know, and Rory, that works on a personal brand level as well as on a, I mean, one, one might argue that you, you should be the poster child of personal branding because uh, you and I have never met, but I feel like I know you through the fantastic content that you've been producing over many years. And so you're somebody that I feel that I know. I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't do as much of it by choice as I do. I, I still do it. I do a bit less. The reason partly is in behavioral science, no business yet has a behavioral science budget, okay? 
it's not a line item on anybody's budget and that you know there mostly aren't clients for it so essentially you've got to create opportunities that's ultimately you've got to make a lot more noise than you would if you were if you're looking for new business in advertising that that exists in predefined places and you know where to look and you can be that much more much more targeted Okay. Having said which, I think advertising agencies have limited themselves by that very targeting, which is that even though we haven't been paid on commissions since 1989, um, ad agencies still behave as if they were paid on commission. They go, now who's got a big media budget? Now, in my case, I don't care if you've got a media budget of zero, but you have got a few thousand pounds to spend on behavioral solutions. Uh, which could completely change your business fortunes without necessarily giving any money to media owners. That's fine by me. Okay. Mm. Um, and yet most ad agencies behave as though the value of a client and therefore the value you can create is proportionate to the amount spent on uh, media. Now, if that's so, and it is so to a degree that that may simply be because companies which don't have big media spend don't have big marketing spend but that comes out of that objectivity trap to an extent and it also comes out of that problem where marketing is becoming considered marcoms i've only ever seen jeremy bullmore get angry once and it was when someone used the word marcoms and he suddenly jeremy's extremely placid urbane guy and no ban the word it's not that, you know, it, 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 you know, because he, he makes the point that once marketing becomes considered comms and effectively it's the, you know, it's that part of the business which spends a load of money on ads and puts your exhibitions up and hosts your conferences. Okay. And it's not the bit of the business that talks about pricing or, you know, positioning or framing or perceptual factors, right? Or psychological factors. And you said you said you Dead in the water. This earlier marketing don't often have um, a voice at, on the board level, um, and and so uh, you know it is a cost center. Um, mm. It's not a strategic um, operation within the business. I was going to ask you: Do do you think that having a CEO that um, perhaps has a marketing background would be a big advantage to a company? It's not a problem in the old, what, what used to be the big marketing companies, okay? So Unilever, P&G, Ricketts, you know, the brewers, right? Okay, because marketing is quite a big expense for them. And so they, and also they know it works or rather they know it can work because they've all had occasions where, you know, you've seen a brand do disproportionately well through marketing, okay? So they know what's going on there. And typically in those organizations, the chief executive will have done a five-year stint as a marketer somewhere, right? Now, it's worth remembering when, when I came into advertising in 1988, and as recently as I think 1995, two-thirds of ad spend was for those kind of brands, right? It was wreck-it, you, you know, packaged goods, beer, discretionary purchases, small value items, bought individually, one item at a time, probably from a shop, sometimes from a pub, sometimes from a tobacconist, you know, that was the kind of stuff that got advertised for about 60 to 70% of, of uh, ad spend. In fact, I was a kid. And when BT started advertising, okay, we thought that was weird. Okay, when I was a kid, 
Well, why is a telephone company advertising? I don't get that because, you know, if I, I've only got one phone and uh, if I need to make a call, I'll pick up the phone. And if I don't, I won't. I wasn't Northern. I don't know why I suddenly went into that, you know. But if you're going matter of fact, you always go to Yorkshire, don't you? You know, yeah. you know like common sense is brummy. No, you don't. Well, look at your dog. But um, uh, the, um, uh, the, the interesting thing there is that, you know, we, we actually thought, why would the post office, i.e. Busby, the telephone yeah. company. Why were they advertising? You know, we're like advertising the post office because we saw those as utilities. You use them when you needed them. And the idea that you know we're total idiots, weren't we? Because obviously, you know, the extent to which you use the phone depends on perceptions of price. Now, one of the most extraordinary things. I mean, I, I mean, literally, when I when I was a a, a um, a kid. Now there were only there were only I think ever three types of phone call. I, I think there was local. Then there was sort of semi-local, which is which is a bit weird. I can't remember what it was. And long distance, right? But people genuinely thought and behaved as though the cost of a phone call were proportionate to the distance. So I can remember as a kid, people actually literally saying, uh, "Look, I've got to make this quick because I'm calling from Scotland." Yeah. And even by the way, after. People would say, I'm sorry, this is a long distance call. I mean, nobody would do this now, okay? Because no. mobile phones have completely changed that. But that was a routine thing when I was like 10 or 12 and answer the phone. And so there was patently a huge opportunity to get people to make more phone calls because what you found is that don't bother reducing the price of a phone call if people think a phone call is more expensive than it is. Change the perception, not the reality, right? Yeah. And nearly everybody thought for some reason that, because I think most people, you know, back in the 50s and 60s lived very largely local lives and only made long distance calls, you know, exceptionally. People would have a good old natter with someone down the road on the phone. But the second it was like 30 miles away, it was like, you know, they were practically talking like a kind of racing commentator to get off the phone. Yeah. And, you know, and dads would actually shout. I'm not making that, you know, dads would go nuts if kids or, or you know, because the dad typically paid the bill back in 1970-something. They go nuts if, if somebody spent, spent too long on the phone. Yeah. And um, it, it seems really weird now, but um, uh, the, um, but no, the interesting thing there is that, um, well, going back to that thing, it seemed really weird. Now, 60% of advertising back then was packaged goods. As I said, it was Hamlet, you know, uh, the pint and, what was it called? Costella cigar, wasn't it? The pinting Stella. Uh, you know, it was that kind of stuff. Now, now that's gone from 66% to, I think, less than 25. And what's taken up the slack has been things like insurance comparison, websites, mobile phone networks, satellite television networks, uh, you know, it might be Netflix even, uh, it might be Sky, uh, it, you know, it could be Compare the Meerkat, uh, it could be a chunk of other stuff. Now, if you notice those, the new marketing company, the new big spender on marketing tends to come from a financial or a tech culture or an engineering culture. It doesn't come from a place where the CEO has done a five year stint in marketing. Now, I'm pretty willing to bet that, you know, if you look at the chief executives of insurance companies, um, uh, they, they haven't done a stint in marketing. And, um, uh, I remember so in marketing as a cost center in those businesses, right? And so as a result, the engineering mentality, the engineering mentality, which is essentially reductionist, um, 
will always think of this as a necessary thing. They may say, if you're lucky, they'll see it as a necessary thing to do. Uh, purists in Silicon Valley, and, and Peter Thiel writes about this, have a kind of ideological uh, dislike of marketing. Because if you're a coder, or you're, you're basically designing a product. The idea is your status derives from the fact that you've designed the best product. Okay, and that you have this delusional belief that the person with the best product will therefore win in the marketplace, which is a very, very dangerous assumption, even assuming you're such a brilliant person, you can define best. Okay, mm -hmm. um, because best in by what criteria, for example. Now, the problem with that is that um, um, uh, you um, uh, you therefore create among that in that culture winning by marketing is almost seen as cheating you know it's and so you, you often get this the purest engineering solution wants to win by producing the best product and almost doesn't want to market because he hates the idea that success could be attributed to anything else yeah. and peter Thiel makes the point which is you have to take marketing seriously because nerds hate marketing but you have to take marketing seriously because marketing works it works on nerds and it works on you and Thiel makes this point very very soundly because he he spots the fact and when you look at it okay that may not mean bought advertising i buy that but no one can say that that jobs and and for example elon musk aren't showmen you know, they're absolutely in the P.T. Barnum stroke Edison line. Edison, massive showman. I mean, unbelievable, you know, uh, to a, by the way, scandalous degree in some cases. I mean, trying to get the rival, um, I think he was trying to get the rival AC method used in the electric chair for electrocutions so that you could portray the competitor's product as dangerous. Yeah, that's the kind of shit that the Edison company was up to, okay? So... The interesting thing is that, I mean, you know, I mean, Jobs was patent there, an extraordinarily um, uh, shrewd uh, marketer. And indeed was, by the way, disliked by many of the engineers within Apple who said, I don't get what Steve does. I mean, like he can't even code. And the point about Jobs was that he had different metrics. It was not what can the phone do, but what does it feel like while you're doing it? And that's the fundamental marketing distinction which is that everybody else in the organization will be looking at the objective capabilities of something, saying, what can it do? And the marketer's job is to go one deeper and to say, okay, uh, the real question is not what can it do, it's what does it feel like while you're doing it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and it's still one of the, the most brilliant ads, and it's very old now, although the, 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 um, the framework still lives on, but a thousand songs in your pocket for the iPod um, is brilliant because I'm again of an age where I was using a Sony Walkman and I would go out and I'd take two tapes with me, which felt bulky because you, you know, it's summer and you've only got a certain number of pockets. And once you don't want to listen to those anymore, you're kind of stuck. And then you could just, sort of, um, it still blows my mind slightly now. Um, all these what, years later. What was interesting about the, the thousand songs in your pocket is it's what we call concretization. And uh, you, first of all, you think about a thousand songs is a hundred CDs, which if you're going to carry that around, maybe not quite, you know, maybe 90, but if you're going to carry that around, that'd be absurd. That's, that's impossible, right? Yeah. Um, but actually before the iPod even existed, I had a thing called a creative portable MP3 player, which had a hard disk inside it. I should donate it to a museum. 
it couldn't quite make the claim of in your pocket because you, unless you had enormous pockets i mean in your overcoat pocket might have been kind of just about plausible um but i remember using it for plane trips and things and thinking it was pretty good and i don't even though it had a hard drive i don't think it quite had um i'm just trying to remember what its capacity was in terms of mp3 songs because I can remember it connected with the old kind of USB connector, you know, where the end was a kind of square. Microphones still use them sometimes, you know, that yeah. not even US micro USB, or, or but the, the really weird one before that. And it used to transfer, at, you know, at glacial pace, you used to transfer your music onto this drive. And um, uh, the... Um, uh, the 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 really weird thing about that was that um uh yeah it, it it nobody nobody really got interested and then a thousand songs to be honest it possibly was a thousand songs i don't think it was to be honest but it would have been 300 it was reasonably impressive but it was entirely a nerd device it never went anywhere else a thousand songs in your pocket is done you know job yes. done yeah you can just of an age, I mean, I guess people take it for granted now, but of an age when, as you say, it's absurd to carry around 90 CDs just in case you want to, you, you fancy a bit of R&B and you've, you know, you're, you're done with your reggae, um, just isn't going to happen. And so, you know, it's, it, it was sort of game changing um, at the time. So um, I'd just like to ask you um, one, um, one more question before we, we move on to your book, Rory, if that's okay. So... In our own industry, even, um, it feels, and this is going back to marketing as a mindset, it feels like marketing is a department over there and there's a couple of people in marketing and they do the marketing. Um, and then you might have double or treble the amount of people in sales. Um, you might have another three or four or five people that are client facing in the C-suite and they don't do the marketing. And, and, and I kind of, I'm a big believer in, sort of the mantra that people buy from people and people are more likely to buy from people that they know and like than they are a brand which is kind of faceless and we spend a lot of time trying to humanize brands when we have actual human brands that we employ you know look at our staff our people so how how can um a b2b organization use its people to to be its marketing function, if you like. I mean, we, we have a we have a solution at Sixos, but I'd love to know how you think marketing as a mindset can be used in a B2B organization so that all of their people well, uh, be, are effectively to be, marketers. To be honest, I mean, one, one way of doing it would be that, I mean, sometimes marketing is now rebranding itself as the growth, you know, the chief growth officer. Yeah. Uh, which isn't bad, actually, because it does make the point that... Um, uh, you know, broadly speaking, you can't cost cut your way to growth. And um, I'd also argue, as maybe uh, Kotler did, that marketing and innovation are the two most important things that a company does, the two things you can't outsource to someone else uh, fully. And I also, by the way, go further and argue that marketing and innovation are have two things in common. One, economics doesn't understand them. So 
uh, economics uh, until people like Paul Romer came along and talked about endogenous growth theory. The whole idea of innovation was entirely exogenous to the economic model. It was just something that happened to the economic model, got absorbed, a new equilibrium was established and off you went. But economists weren't really interested in, um, uh, in, in innovation. And of course, they don't really believe in marketing because they start from an assumption of the perfectly informed individual. Um, who knows in advance how much utility to the penny he'll derive from a product and knows to the penny how much he's willing to pay. And the other thing I'd say is that marketing and innovation are, if not the same thing, they're certainly two sides of the same coin uh, for the simple reason that there are two ways you can create a new market, one of which is finding out what people really want and working out a way to provide it. And the other way is working out what you can provide and finding out a clever way to make people want it. Okay. Mm. And there's no useful distinction to be made between the economic value created. It, in, in reality, it's always a bit of both, isn't it? To be honest, yeah. you know, you, know, you always change your service in particular, or you might change your, your, your good or your product in response to insight, but you also need to change perception in response to your product. And to get people to change their habits, by the way, is difficult. And it's difficult to get people to do things which at the time, lots of people aren't doing. I think it's why a lot of products have to start at the luxury end before they can actually then um, massify. So there are, there are a few weird exceptions to that, like Coca-Cola, which have just, you know, gone mass instantaneously, and McDonald's, obviously. Um, but they're fairly significant innovations. If you're Tesla, in the early days, there are too few people who are willing to go and buy, buy an electric car. So in a way, the way you get around it is you make it a status product first, mm -hmm. and then it generally... I was going to say trickles down, but that's a slightly discredited um, phrase. But it trickles down into into more and more mainstream parts of the market. Yeah. Um, that, um, so getting people to change their behaviour in response to a new product, because we have social proof as one very strong driving force, and we have habit as another very strong driving force. And I'm just going to pause here while the phone gets answered. Sure. Oh, it's been answered. Sorry. And both of those. Uh, both of those things tend to work against people changing their behavior. And so you often see in the adoption of new technologies, even the mobile phone, uh, this sigmoid curve, it's the bass diffusion curve, where it starts slow, then it reaches kind of critical mass where it's no longer weird. And then suddenly, I mean, the mobile phone is it's not completely a network good, actually. The fax machine would have been a network good. But I mean, you get these very, very uneven... Now, that, that, by the way, is really important because I've often argued that look, the way we measure advertising tends to assume a linear response, right? So if you're doing advertising, if you looked at the pattern of drink driving or the pattern of mobile phone adoption, what you'll see is that my parents didn't drink and drive. I just, I always make this caveat because, but in, among my parents' generation, a lot of people would drive over the limit fairly routinely if they were drinkers. Okay, and you know, and for, for whatever reason, in that generation, in my kids' generation, they would basically, you know, they, they would knock one of their friends unconscious before they allowed them to get into a car drunk, you know. Yeah. But in, in my parents' generation, you had to tacitly accept that, you know, people came to your house, they drank a bit too much booze, and they drove home. Um, I mean, 
you'd always invite them to give them the opportunity to stay the night, I think, if you're courteous. But nonetheless, you wouldn't really stop them getting into the car. Now, if you look at patterns of behavior, which are nonlinear like that, and it changes slowly, then it changes fast, then it reaches a new equilibrium. Okay, if you're measuring your advertising by its effect, your early days advertising, which might be actually very effective, looks ineffective. And your middle advertising when you're hitting that tipping point looks unbelievably effective even though a large part of the change is simply permeating through you know social behavior mm. you know, a new social norm is in the business of being established which is you don't drive pissed you know uh, it's not happening or uh, you know when i first used a mobile phone in oxford street in 1989 people shouted wanker at me from passing cars it wasn't my fault right someone had rung me I'd been given a company phone. It wasn't even my phone. And I was carrying it to some job where I had to go and travel somewhere on the tube. And while I was walking to the tube on Oxford Street, someone rang me. So I didn't have much choice but to put this brick to my head. And people shouted abuse from passing cars. Um, and by the way, the mobile phone had been around for about five or six years. Analog, yeah. But the mobile phone had been around for about six or seven years. I mean, it had been a known thing. Well, I can remember in 1984, you'd see someone in a restaurant with a thing like a car battery with a phone on top. Yeah. And um, so, you know, this was, it was still in Oxford Street, right? I wasn't in like some remote, bloody rural place, right? People still shouted abuse at you for using a mobile phone. They thought it was a ridiculous thing to do and they didn't know why anybody yeah. needed one. And so it's really important we understand these network dynamics because we could very easily kill off investments or products too soon if we don't understand how the pattern... I'll give you an example of that, actually. Um, I'm going to ask you a question. Be candid, because, you know, be as introspective as you can be. I would have bought Google Glass by now if they'd continued with it. Actually, particularly for working from home, right? Because... You know, it doesn't really matter what, you know, I don't even have to wear trousers in the current yeah. work environment. And so, you know, wearing slightly weird specs, which if, if all they did was just tell me, okay, your next appointment's in seven minutes. This is who it is. It's a Zoom call, right? Yeah. And occasionally flashed up other notifications, you know, like the odd, you know, the time or the news thing. And I didn't have to, you know, wear a watch or whatever. Um, I would have bought Google Glass by now. I think Google Glass would have become quite common if they'd stuck with it, but they bottled it too soon. Because in the early days, people were called glass holes and they were abused for wearing Google Glass and there were privacy concerns about the camera. I get that. Was the camera necessary? I mean, you know, by which I mean, it's probably necessary to have a camera so it can see what you're looking at. I'm not sure it's necessary for the camera to have the facility to record. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, uh, but... What, what was so fascinating about that is I think they killed it too soon because I think had they stuck it, I, I, you know, would you have bought one by now? What do you think? Yeah, I think so. Probably. Yeah. I, yeah. I, just I, out of curiosity, you know, I mean, yeah. to be honest, I buy what, you know, I buy a lot of tech out of curiosity. I try a lot of things out of curiosity because one of the things I do notice is that we think we know whether something's valuable or not. And actually in reality, we don't. Mm. I know that sounds a strange thing to say, but, I mean, an interesting product I got into over lockdown uh, is Gusto, you know, the home delivery of food. Yes. And, you know, if you explain it to me, and they, they send you all the ingredients, and they send you recipes, and you make the recipes, and the recipes are very tasty, which they are incredibly delicious, right? 
And you go, yeah, but I mean, it's a box of food arriving and it seems, you know, I could go to a cardo and find a recipe, order all the ingredients. But there's something about it which has magical appeal, which is, you know, hard to explain. And we're not quite, we're not quite, I mean, you know, my wife and I say, you know, we really, really love this and I'm not quite sure why. And so some is there an element of uh, the Aunt Bessie's, um, moving on to your book, the, the Aunt Bessie's example you gave where it was too easy if... Um, oh, that's, um, that's Betty Crocker. Oh, Betty Crocker, I apologise. Yeah. And just add an egg and then suddenly it feels like you're cooking. Yeah. Well, I suppose the mixture is there's a degree to which you add enjoyment to your food by, by dint of the effort you put into creating it. There's yeah. also the fact that you're creating the smell in advance of the food, which probably changes the context of taste and perception. So the problem with the takeaway is that it just arrives. There's no anticipatory kind of um, uh, smell of food being prepared. And the other theory I've got also, which is that um, it's kind of, because it enables you to cook fairly ethnic food um, uh, with just the right ingredients, which is difficult because ethnic food requires a lot of ingredients. And, you know, you, you end up with, you know, 20 pounds worth of sp- 30 pounds worth of spice rack at any one time but also it enables you to prepare ethnic food when you have a takeaway i think you always over order and you they always oversupply and you always overeat so it may partly be that you have the food you want in the quantities you want which you don't get when you get a takeaway but i mean who knows it may just be there's partly a zen thing about the the minimization of waste as well yeah when you've eaten it it's all gone you know, you don't have this thing where you have this leftover and that leftover. What do we do with those three onions, you know? Yeah, uh, very interesting. So, um, Rory, um, Alchemy, great book. Um, really enjoyed it. Um, just, how would you summarize why you wrote it and, um, and what it's about? At a very simple level, it's about um, the fact that human behavior is, does not map neatly onto objective stimuli. Mm. I'm just looking for my coffee and therefore there's a fundamental misconnect between what business and for that matter government tends to measure which tend to be economic or physical variables Mm. and how people behave I'll give you an example of this Um, television is actually a fantastic alchemy device because your TV or your screen the monitor you're looking at now is designed around human perception. And it so happens that there are three types of code in the human eye. I didn't know this until two years ago. I didn't really understand what was going on with color. Uh, And they detect red, um, blue, and green, right? Now, red and green, okay, is if you fire equal amounts of red and green, at no point is there a yellow photon anywhere produced. But the eye can't distinguish between equal amounts of red and green and yellow. So we produce a television which produces a million colors, as Samsung claim, or it might be a billion. I can't remember what it is now. In fact, it produces only three. In physical terms, it's only doing three things. Red, every pixel is red, blue, green, right? Now, imagine if you were trying to produce an objective television and it had to be able to produce yellow. Well, now you you know, and it had to be able to produce all these other colors, okay? you'd basically, it would cost a fortune. It'd be totally impossible. And so fortunately, television, color television, 
was invented by someone who actually understood human perception and they had metrics for the things that humans care about in that in this case it is three colors and three colors only can produce pretty much i think not quite at the ultraviolet end and perhaps you know um a snake would think your television was rubbish because they detect infrared birds have a completely different um, tend to have a, and lower primates have a completely different um, uh, color palette, as it were. So all color mixing that you've seen in those color mixing charts happens in the head, doesn't happen in physics. You, if you mix red and green photons, you've got red and green photons, you don't get any yellow photons, mm -hmm. right? But the brain produces the appearance of yellow. So if you can produce the appearance, the emotional simulacrum of punctuality, as Uber does, not by making your cabs turn up sooner, but by showing a map on which the cab is displayed, okay? Mm. Uh, then you've actually solved a problem, just as a television designer has, much more cheaply than someone who's trying to solve the problem objectively using the metrics of physics. Because yeah. it's, a, it's essentially, it's amygdala-focused activity, not... Um, measurement because measurement equipment and to some extent what physics was all about was finding objective forms of measurement which then could sit in mathematical formulae okay now the fact that most of those things are objective as far as physicists are concerned temperature right okay you know those american weather forecasts where they go you know 74 degrees and sunny feels like 77 okay yeah that's an acknowledgement that the way we perceive temperature isn't a function of the temperature. So humidity and, of course, the breeze would be another one. Uh, I, think, I think the feels like temperature factors in humidity and it also factors in the likely sort of wind speed at uh, six feet above the ground, which is where our head is, roughly speaking. Mm. And um, so... Um, So there's this huge mistake where we think we're doing something completely rational by trying to optimize objective metrics. But in the case of producing yellow light from a television, that metric is a complete waste, that, you know, that target's a completely false target because you've already got red and green, and if you produce those in equal measure, the brain perceives yellow, right? Yeah. If you put delayed 30 minutes, to be absolutely honest, as far as the passenger is concerned, the flight's no longer delayed. Bear in mind, okay, there are three people who are pissed off because they're going to arrive three minutes late in their meeting, which is right next to the airport. But equally, there are five minutes, five people who are actually pretty happy because they thought they're going to miss the plane and now they haven't. Okay, so, you know, it swings and roundabouts. Yeah. Um, uh, and so the point is to produce in people the... Um, uh, the the emotions that create a sense of satisfaction not to create the objective metrics which may be inexactly or in some cases i think genuinely um uh inexactly non-linearly and in some cases actually i would say directly deleterious to satisfaction i think there are cases where companies pursue metrics uh, which, well, I'll give you a perfect example of that, the NHS, okay? So the NHS, um, uh, you can't, the reason you can't make a doctor's appointment two days in advance is because one of their metrics is how many patients they see on the day the patients request an appointment. 
And the way they got around that, okay, by gaming the system is you can only request an appointment at eight o'clock in the morning and you can only request an appointment for that day. Now, if you've got a job, first of all, you probably want a doctor's appointment around about nine o'clock in the morning or about four or five o'clock in the afternoon. So you don't have to take the whole day off work. That's in the old days when people went to work. Yeah. Um, Secondly, you may want to get permission with your boss that you're taking Friday off. So you want a couple of days notice of your doctor's appointment. For anybody with a job, this business of saying ring back at eight o'clock uh, uh, tomorrow morning is a complete bloody disaster, right? And, and you're according on the phone to, for half an hour. Their objective metric, which, which sounds sensible on paper, doesn't it? Percentage of patients who are able to get an appointment, okay, uh, with, on the day in which they requested it. Ooh, wow, 100%, fantastic. What that never accounted for, that metric, was there's a significant percentage of, of people who want an appointment specifically not for that day. I'll give you two examples. People with a job who may need to clear it with their boss or people who work from home on a Friday might want to book one on a Monday for the Friday because, you know. Um, uh, and then a, a third group, by the way, would be people who are kind of a bit ill Okay, and they go, this might go away. This weird lump on my skin might go away, but if it's still there on Friday, I'm gonna, I, I wanna go and see the doctor about it. Now, in that situation, it's a very good use of the doctor's time to say, I'm not gonna see the doctor immediately about this funny thing, but what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna hold the doctor's appointment for you know, a week on Tuesday as a kind of fallback position. And then if the thing gets better on its own accord, I'll cancel the appointment. Well, that's a great thing to do. You know, that's a really sensible use of your time and your doctor's time, but the system doesn't allow you to do it. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. And then, and sometimes the converse of that, we were trying to get. I mean, it's obviously at different times now with um, with COVID and everything. But um, we were trying to get a doctor's appointment, and we we couldn't see see a doctor for a week. And I was like, well, I'll probably be better by then, or dead. You know, <laughs> yeah. Um, either way, I won't need you. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's difficult anyway. So what are you working on at the moment, Roy, that you're really excited about? Is there any big projects that you've got going on that you're, you, you're finding really fascinating? Yeah, there are a few, unfortunately, they're all sort of secret, by which I don't mean they're super secret. They're not, I'm not like Cambridge Analytica or anything, um, working with mysterious foreign governments. No, it's simply that they're new products, um, or, um, bits of business that we simply haven't announced yet, wins sure. we haven't announced yet. Um, uh, there is one I, can, I think I can mention safely, which really, really excites me, uh, which is an espresso recycling, you know, how you can get that essentially everybody to recycle their pods. And, you know, they've done quite a lot. Um, but one of the things we can, you know, we can do is to make it easy and habitual, maybe even make it socially visible, you know. Um, but uh, that's one of those challenges which I absolutely love because it's an absolutely worthwhile end. It's a necessary, because uh, actually the pods being aluminium is great, right? It's not single-use plastic. Aluminium is very, re I mean, you can recycle it more or less endlessly because it's a chemical element if you think about it, okay? And so um, it's actually a very good product in, in that sense because the aim of, of, of Nestle is essentially uh, more or less, if you think about it, to no longer need to buy any more aluminium because the pre-existing pod um, population uh, will supply you with all your future pod needs. Mm. And um, uh, so um, 
but that that really appeals to me as a, uh, a, a, a as as a behavioural challenge. Uh, looking at that, and I, you know, because again, when you think about it, uh, one of the reasons we've been quite busy under lockdown, of course, is that when you have a pandemic, uh, a lot of questions become behavioural questions. Because a lot of behavior at the moment is taken for granted by companies because they effectively model demand on an extrapolation of previous demand. And they assume that it will continue. Now, it's an unsafe assumption. In, in times of change, when things change, you need to understand what it is that people really want from you. You can't use past demand as a kind of proxy for future demand because when the environment significantly changes, that, that doesn't just include pandemics, it also includes when a new competitor comes in. You can't optimise yourself on the past, as Gerd Gigerenzer says. Yeah. And um, I think a lot of people tend to do that. And um, it's, you know, and so, uh, the, you know, one reason why behavioral science practice will be in demand when there's rapid change, whether that's through innovation or through, you know, epidemiology, is because, you know, suddenly you've got to go back to what, what are people going to be trying to do here? You know, how do we get people back onto planes rather than, by the way, we forget, one of the things we always forget, and I think this affects engineers badly in Silicon Valley. You know, I mentioned the fact that engineers tend to hate marketing. Yeah. One great thing you can do is go back and look at old ads for tech. And what never occurs to us for a second is that there was a period of about three decades where you had to actually advertise heavily and market heavily the benefits of having electricity in your home right okay. now if you bought a house, let's say you bought some converted barn right in um uh, you know in the welsh countryside and it didn't have electricity the first thing you do pretty much would be to get an electricity supply to the place you don't think of that as requiring marketing you don't think a guy's got to come around and say and it'd be really convenient because you could have an electric you know I mean, you just go, what the hell, you know. But, you know, I, you can go back to the 1920s and there are these fantastic ads for the, for, I, I found one for the Dublin Corporation encouraging people in Dublin to get electricity in the homes. And they were saying, what's rather sweet is you can just imagine being the copywriter in these ads because the copywriter's got to come up with arguments for an electric kettle over a, over a gas, or I guess it would have been a gas kettle, right? Um, and some of them, you know, you've just flicked the switch and there's boiling water, there's no gas, there's, you know, blah, blah, blah. But some of the arguments are actually fantastic because they're totally plausible, but they never happen. So the woman says, now the great thing is, she says, this is an ad for, you know, why, why electric kettles are great. I'm here sitting to you, Deirdre, sitting talking to you, and I won't have to go over to the stove to top up our pot of tea because I've got the kettle right here on the table. <laughs> nobody has ever done that. Nobody literally has ever done that, have they? No, I, mean, I don't. I, I mean, and the elderly might. You might have a kettle within arm's reach, I guess, if you were kind of immobilized in some way. And the second thing she said is, and the wonderful thing is, I can now have a fresh cup of tea first thing in the morning because every night I take my kettle upstairs to my bedroom and I boil the tea, I boil the tea up there. Well, I suppose there was a tease made at one point, wasn't there? Yes, there was the tease made, yeah, obviously, yeah, which I think is possibly, possibly due a comeback. I will suggest it to Nespresso that they make the Nespresso made, yeah. which wakes you up in the morning with a... 
it's looking after the milk overnight that was the, was the problem i think you need like a little mini fridge in it so it can of course of course the, you see this is why i think the tea is made might be joe comeback because the the mini fridge which didn't really exist then and if it had it would cost 280 quid or something my daughter's just bought a mini fridge for university and it was about 80 pounds or something and they're technically not allowed to have mini fridges, but she's fortunate she's got a nut allergy, so she can use that as an excuse. To be honest, it won't be full of nut, I don't think it'll be full of food at all, to be honest. But no. there we go, that's the young for you. Uh, but um, it's, um, no, I mean, that's, that, that's the really kind of interesting thing. I thought it was such a lovely thing, because here's this copywriter going, I've got to imagine why an electric kettle is better than a gas kettle, and coming up with these things which, Totally plausible in a sense. Maybe, maybe people did them for five years, but they were never behaviours that stuck. No. But, but understanding, I, I've got a sales manual teaching people how to sell electricity. Um, from the, it's something like the equivalent of the South Wales Electricity Board from 1925 or something. And you know, you have to kind of reel off all these various arguments, whether it's a business customer or, or a residential customer and so on and so forth. But of course, you know, again, there's, there was an element which is that, uh, you know, uh, there are now virtually no alternatives to most electrical products. I mean, you can buy, I think, a you probably can buy a gas-fired coffee maker somewhere or other for campers or something like that. But I mean, basically everything assumes you've got a plug. Now, of course, it was different then because you know what you'd done is you'd made do under the previous circumstances, and what marketing required you to do is to see how much you are missing out on. And literally, you know, you know, when people disparage marketing and say it makes people want things they don't need, and you know, I discovered this from the nineteenth. There's a wonderful, you know, kind of slightly left wing nasty what i call nasty left wing you know that nasty left wing which is you know well if we give the working classes more money they'll kind of do it and this actually says you know if you give the working classes more money the likelihood is they'll spend their money on pointless luxuries like dishwashers and washing machines yeah, what the fuck right i'm looking at this okay so this was written in like this wasn't written in like 1930 right i mean nobody had a washing a dishwasher in 1930 uh, i imagine washing machines existed in the 30s but i don't know um okay well laundrettes must have done i guess i remember reading this sentence you know what the flaming hell's going on the person who was writing that in 1964 was deadly serious they thought that was you know now if you think about the effect of the washing machine on uh, you know for example uh, female employment it's you know you know i mean if you think about it i mean someone without servants essentially would have had a an entire day dedicated to laundry um, before the washing machine came along. Yeah. Very interesting. Rory, I've kept you for um, uh, longer than, than planned. And thank you so much. I've, I've really, really enjoyed that. Um, we could probably talk all day, um, but um, I'm sure you've got a day job as well. So thank you so much. It's for been your a time. pleasure. I hope that's useful. Uh, you'll need to edit, I'm afraid, but uh, let's uh, hope... Uh... No, I, I think I think it's perfect that it is, but I will uh, I, I will just go back and make sure that um, I think my doorbell rang at one point and uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, whatever. But thank you so much. Um, I've really really enjoyed that. Thank it's you so much. Vital sentence to end on because we mentioned that whole thing about you know, uh, but what you measure, what you can measure, and what is effective in some weird fantasy world, they be the same thing. In reality, they're not.
okay the fact the things that are easy to measure are not necessarily the things that are important so the obsession with making advertising work at the molecular level saying that it's only we have to be able to define the function of the of the campaign in advance we have to be able to measure it and we only measure it to the extent to which it achieves a predefined objective okay that is an incredible limitation you're imposing on your ability to actually practice marketing yeah for okay. sure. because you can only do about 10 percent of what marketing can do under those conditions that's like saying we can't use drugs because we know they work on average or because we know they work 95 percent of the time we have to know how the drug works at the molecular level before we're permitted to uh, to, to administer drugs. you wouldn't have had penicillin for 30 years, you wouldn't have had paracetamol, you wouldn't have had aspirin, okay? Most drugs, we hadn't got a clue how they, how they worked in detail at the individual level. We just knew that they did. Mm. That and um, and yeah. that goes perfectly back to marketing. That's how marketing used to work. We, we would advertise on TV and outdoor and radio and sales would go up and we'd be happy with that. I was talking to a really senior doctor yesterday and he said most of the progress that's been made really in COVID isn't in epidemiology, it's actually in treatment. And most of that treatment improvement has come through basically trial and error. It's doctors, he said basically, the way, the way medicine works in theory is everybody looks at scientific papers and he said the way medicine works in practice is there are two doctors in the pub necking back pints and one of them goes, you know you give them that dose of, I can't remember what the product is, it's a, because the, the immune system tends to overreact to COVID, you give people, um, uh, um, uh, oh God, what are they called? Um, uh, they they're used by athletes um, to uh, uh, what the hell what the hell do you call them? Um, but anyway, it, it's the doctor says you know you normally give them a gram. To be honest, I give them two. You know, mm. and he said you know that that's really how medicine progresses. It's a craft. It's not a science, and it's people noticing things, people sort of experimenting with things, people trying what works, what doesn't, and the idea that before you act, you have to have this you know perfect conditions. Mm. It, you know, it, it, it doesn't really work that way. No. No. I better go now because I've got another one coming in at 10. But thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Roy. Um, steroids, by the way, is what I meant to say. Steroids, uh, right. steroids, which tend to quieten down the immune system a bit if you've got an overreaction. And, um, uh, you know, a hell of a lot of this stuff just proceeds through shared experience of... Um, uh, you know, uh, well, I, I happen to notice it's not going to do them any harm, and it, you know, when I tried it, it seemed to help. Yeah. You know, um, and um, can be dangerous, of course, but I mean, ultimately, medicine's kind of a craft, not a science. Yeah, well, I suppose uh, our uh, our desire for um, certainty is we, we don't want to know that. We we want to no. think, oh, this has yeah. been very well tested and it's definitely okay, and you know, uh, and all the rest of it. But... Our desire for certainty, but also there's also a slight. Um, 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 bastard stepchild of our um, uh, uh, d our desire for certainty, which is that um, uh, it also is driven by our desire to evade the risk of blame. So it's not always about high quality decision making. It's often driven by the need to defend a decision. And this is a lot in B2B. There's a lot yeah. of decision making that like, if I do this, is there a, a chance that I'm, I'm going to put myself out there and, and end up getting uh, shot for it? Best to do nothing. 
um, or to take the uh, the decision that is um, least likely to get me fired, essentially. Which again is a, is a uh, stunts creativity because um, if you're if you live in a blame culture like that and you're um, you can't you can't do anything remotely um, counterintuitive or or unusual. No, absolutely right. Yeah. Wonderful. Rory, thank you so much for your time. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Once it's out there, um, I will, uh, of course, tag you across the various social channels. And uh, if you could give that little share so your, your, your own audience can, uh, can listen in, that would be, uh, be very much appreciated. What a pleasure. Thank you very much indeed.